0: The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash matmdegree. That's Fuller. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly Podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest books from authors interviewed and a vip experience at this summer's general assembly we want to thank william johnson and cindy Follendorf for their monthly support of the podcast check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support and now on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Jason Coker. He is the National Director of Together for Hope and Field Coordinator for CBF Mississippi. He is a Yale Divinity School grad and earned a doctorate from Drew University. He also wears cycling shorts like no one else in the fellowship. Uh, Jason, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: Thanks Thanks for uh, that introduction. I, I really appreciate the last part. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, um, you know, in a few moments, we're going to get to your your new book and this tremendous conversation that you are uh, boosting for local churches to talk about. But let's talk about this COVID experience and the Mississippi Delta, which is where you focus um, your work. W- what's this experience been like for most people connected to Together for Hope?
1: Well, I think all of our practitioners, not just in the Delta, but you, you, know, as, you know, Rio Grande Valley, Black Belt, Appalachia, they they've all had to make a huge pivot in what they were doing, and uh, COVID has um, you know has It's certainly not mission drift, but uh, it's accentuated everything. So um, the amount of food distribution and supply chain. Uh, processes that we are a part of now is ridiculous. I mean, uh, in the Delta and the in the uh, Rio Grande Valley in particular, I mean, hundreds of thousands of pounds of food have been distributed and like Delta Hands for Hope in particular, our, our site in Shaw, it's a distribution center now, uh, weekly distribution center for uh, food. And <clears throat> that's on top of everything else that they're doing. So Every week, they're providing family food boxes, meat boxes, vegetable boxes, dairy boxes, Um, and then they had a shipment come in of sweet potatoes, uh, uh, an 18-wheeler full of sweet potatoes that that they dropped off, and people just came and got as much as they could. So the food distribution piece has been astronomical, and so that's what Shakita Fountain's doing at Delta Hands for Hope. Linda Stringfellow, the vice president of Together for Hope Delta, uh, has, been, has has helped Chiquita, but she's also incorporated uh, five new organizations within Together for Hope in the Delta. And uh, one of them is a church in Itabina, and that church serves as a food pantry for Itabina. And there's no grocery store uh, there in town. And Mississippi Valley State that is there, the uh, HBCU, a historically black college and university. So that church, uh, through its large food pantry, functions as a grocery store in a food desert. And I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands of boxes have come through Edabina, um with Linda's work there and a couple of other organizations. So those distribution centers have um, engage over 38 other organizations around the Delta where they come and get food from us and then take them back to their places and distribute it. So, uh, we've reached, you know, almost 40 other organizations right there in the Mississippi Delta, um, and have, you know, received, uh, closer to $75,000 of grants from the, you know, the, the, um, Northwest, the Community Foundation in Northwest Mississippi, the Maxwell Foundation, CBF uh, COVID Disaster Relief, uh, local church uh, it, churches in Mississippi who have given in tor- given towards uh, COVID relief, and that money is just used to buy to buy this food and distribute this food to help get our practitioners and volunteers gloves and masks and hand sanitizers. Uh, and it's just every day, all day long, we are in the food distribution process and working with food banks in Memphis and in Jackson, um, and even through the USDA to get grants to, to be a part of the food distribution supply chain. And it is. Um, and, you know, Jorge Zapata down in the valley uh, through. uh, uh his organization, they, they're doing something very similar. So those are probably the two most active spots as far as food distribution goes. Francis Ford in sowing seeds for hope. She's killing it. I think she was the first rural site in Alabama to provide COVID testing. So she's been doing COVID testing because she's a nurse practitioner. Um, since March, and uh, they've been able to, you know, been able to monitor uh, how many folks have tested positive in that area because of the work she's been doing, uh, and, and that's on top of everything they already do. So it has been an enormously uh, busy time for our Together for Hope practitioners on the ground. In addition to what they already provide, they're they're doing food and medical work. So, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah i'm exhausted talking about it i you know uh these guys are on the ground doing it
0: so i mean we can you can take a nap for the rest of this interview if you want to <laughs> if this if this is the space you need and and uh, i'll just insert a lullaby sound uh for our listeners to to maybe they could join uh, that, you in a nap
1: no kidding that might not that might be a uh, a wonderful aid towards uh our folks so
0: I, so small side note, I had a church member one time that said, I have an investment opportunity for you. And I said, what's that? And he said, um, I want to record you talking, um, because I don't know what it is about your voice, but you put my child to sleep in worship every single week. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, ever since our child was born, you know, they were in, child was in the womb, you know, while we were here at this church. Uh, you know, they're now two years old, but you, we can't get them to go to sleep, but your voice puts them to sleep. And it's like, thanks, uh, I guess,
1: uh, yeah, well, Will Rogers, I think it was Will Rogers who said, um, if you can't fall asleep, you must in church, you must have a pretty bad conscience. (laughs) Um, all right. So how
0: has this pandemic amplified the racial and economic disparity in the American South? I know that could be our entire conversation, but what are you seeing through the the work of Together for Hope?
1: Well, you know, COVID-19 is a magnifier and accelerant to everything that was already wrong with our country. So um, the kind of health disparities... Uh, uh, you know the race racial health disparities were um, accentuated and magnified d- f- with COVID. So um, the African American community in Mississippi was uh, directly impacted uh, almost to, at a two to one ratio among the to the white community uh, because of the uh, comorbid uh, conditions uh, within the community uh, ahead of time. And that is uh, a colleague of mine in, at Columbia University. She said that's not that's not an issue of race. That's an issue of racism. Uh, and her research does uh, a lot of work on how racism affects the black body, and uh, you know, with high blood pressure and diabetes in particular. So any kind of population that already had more uh, um, comorbid issues were at a higher risk to COVID, so they have been. Um, it has been disproportionately uh, affecting uh, minorities, in particular, uh, in, in the South. So that that I mean, we see that on a daily basis. Most of our organizations here are in um, you know their, their service areas in a predominantly African American community, and uh, that's kind of the hot spots of where this is happening. And it's not because, uh, you know, people are, um, you know, there's a c- cultural issue. It's because of the, the the effects of racism and how racism affects people's access to medical care and economic development and things of that nature. So it's been devastating to see that same same kind of stuff in the Rio Grande Valley and the Black Belt um in native lands i can't even talk about native lands the, the navajo nation we have a practitioner there um, greg long they basically shut down the navajo nation to outsiders because covid is so high right now and um you know pe- people are dying and <sighs> It is. um, It's just devastating. And and I know I see it in our practitioners' faces. Uh, They are exhausted and tired, uh, not just because of the extra work they're doing, but the the danger that exists in doing it and um, putting themselves in harm's way to make sure kids eat. Like at at Delta Hands for Hope, they've been feeding uh, 70 to 100 kids lunch three days a week since March because when school's out, those kids don't have a a hot meal. So, um, you know, they're doing that on top of all the food distribution, uh, and it's a grab and go lunch. So the kids just come and grab their lunch and, and leave. But still, uh, you got a, a, a flow of people coming through there and it puts it at a high risk for COVID. So, um, it's just, it's, it's like that every day. And, um, Uh, that a lot of it is because of racism, the effects of racism, historical racism on um, minority populations. Um, It's, it's devastating.
0: We're going to switch gears. Um, Not that I don't want to continue to talk about this, but um, you know, we kind of set up this conversation to talk about um, something else. You have a new book out, Faded Flowers Mm -hmm. Preaching in the Aftermath of Suicide uh, and this is a, a theological narrative of your experience as a pastor caring for a congregation in the aftermath of a tragic death. You wrote, uh, amid the shocking news and aftermath, I had to deliver this sermon series on Christian response to pain. The sermons that follow the first one came from a deep place of questioning as I wondered, how in the world do I do this? So before we get to the actual tragedy and experience, um, tell us why now was the time to write this book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been sitting on this for a long time, and um, the 10th anniversary of this kid's death uh, came, and I I felt like this was going to be an important um, resource for pastors and for people who have experienced loss. In general, but specifically, uh, I lost you to uh, death by suicide, and it's just you know it's such a personal journey for me. And it was it was uh, I, I mourned this kid's death, and still mourn him, uh, and still love him. So, um, just kind of the personal part of it, and uh, and and having that distance was probably helpful. Uh, to be able to uh, each chapter is this is those original sermons. uh, And then kind of my reflection on that sermon a decade later. So there, it creates kind of like an arc from that original raw space to, you know, 10 years later. And I think that arc, there's some hope in that arc in the sense that Um, You know, we continue to live our lives, but our lives are different. It's changed. uh, And and, uh, by that moment, and and that traumatic experience. And so there's no there's a there's a lot of honesty in it. but I, I think it was just um it was just time, you know. I think the the anniversary, the tenth anniversary was a time of for me to reflect. Every year on his birthday and on his death date, I call his parents who I love and and still love and still have real close relationships with them. So um it just it felt like the right time, you know.
0: Tell us about Chet.
1: Uh, Chet Burchett, uh, Chester Wayne Burchett II was a bright light. I loved him. Um, when he, his family joined our church, um, they, the first time they came to our church was on a Wednesday night. So that kind of gives you an idea of what kind of family that, I mean, they are churchy kind of folks, right? They're going to, they come in and visit you on a Wednesday night. Uh, they're pretty serious business. When I was a pastor in Mississippi years ago, at my first church, actually, uh, Granny Irene said that uh, if you love, if you love the preacher, you'll come on Sunday morning. If you love the church, you'll come on Sunday night, but if you love Jesus, you'll come a Wednesday night, you know, Uh, and I think uh, that's kind of how this family was. They were completely faithful, Uh, so I met him on a Wednesday night when he was in seventh grade, and then by that weekend, that weekend, he called me, and he's like, hey, uh, I'm in trouble at school. Can you come get me? (laughs) So he had uh, had gotten in trouble at a dance at school, so I got him, and took him home. And, uh, that was the beginning of a great relationship. I mean, he was, he was a fun kid, got into trouble all the time. Uh, and, uh, some of it was serious, but, uh, it was, uh, he was fun and people loved him. Uh, he was a kind of, he was a guitar player in a punk rock band and, uh, and was a really fantastic guitarist, but a, a real lyricist, a poet and uh and that poetry came from dark places within him there's no getting around it but uh he was a kid that would cross the the teenage boundaries between uh jocks and nerds and band folks and all you know he 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 had friends in all those groups and everybody loved him so uh he was it was a lot of fun when he was at church every time the doors were open and went to all our youth camps um I even uh, got to become friends with all his punk rock buddies who had tattoos and purple hair and uh, ear gauges and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they would hang out at Starbucks every day after school, and I'd go and drink a cup of coffee with them. So it was me and all these teenagers smoking their cigarettes uh, and drinking their coffee, and just got to know that whole crowd of kids. and um, And they saw our church as their church, even if they weren't Christian. Even you know, there's a lot of them weren't Christian. A lot of them. Uh, weren't anything, uh, uh, but they saw our church as kind of their place. So it was a lot of fun, um, a fun group of kids, and uh, and Chet was kind of the ringleader of them all. What
0: was the experience like pastoring to this family in, this, in the wake of this loss? Um, you know, what prepared you for this moment to lead?
1: Nothing. I mean, there's just nothing. Uh, and this was some of the real reasons I I felt like I had to get this book out there because when it happened, I was just looking for anything. You know, what, what out there can, can help me, uh, get through this personally as a human being who's lost somebody they love and as a leader of a congregation that has to lead the congregation through it. And there just wasn't much out there. Um, and, and that was really hard. So, um Nothing in seminary I'd gone through uh, and nothing in my own pastoral experience uh, had had really set me up to to do that well. And so kind of in real time, I reached out to pastors uh, and friends uh, for help and you know and got some real help. So George George Mason sent me uh, some really good stuff uh, that's part of the book. Uh, even the part like the best parts of the funeral sermon come from what George sent me. Uh, and those were real lifelines to me so um, it was it was just uh terrible and um, you know you see people who you love and you're their pastor but you're also their friend and you see them suffer like that it is it is painful just to watch it uh, much less participate in it so our whole congregation really suffered and and there we were you know, only hours after the first sermon and a series of sermons during Lent that dealt with how we're supposed to respond to pain, and you know we set that sermon series up because we really weren't dealing with anything serious at the time, so we thought this would be a great time to kind of uh, intellectually go through, uh, you know, how we are supposed to respond to pain and evil. Uh, and yet, uh, only hours after that first sermon, there we were staring down um, a whole season of this kind of deep contemplation in the midst of, of our, the worst tragedy our church had ever experienced in its life. So um, that was just one of those things where you just keep going. I mean, that's uh, from day to day, and sometimes it was hour to hour. And, uh, I don't think anything can prepare you for that kind of loss. Um, you can't, parents can't prepare for losing a child and, um, communities and churches can't prepare for losing a teenager, uh, whatever the circumstances. And, but, you know, death by suicide is a particular kind of grief that is, uh, that is its own thing and different than other kinds of grief. So, uh, Trying to navigate those waters just the best you can is not easy. But um, when you're the pastor, you're the pastor, and everybody's looking to you. And that's a, that's a pretty terrifying place to be sometimes. Uh, you know, there were so many tragedies that hit our area while I was there. Sandy Hook happened, uh, the Sandy Hook Massacre, that was only about 15 miles north of us. And uh, it was very similar in the sense that uh, when that happened, I was looking around like, who am, who out there is doing all the, the right things? And I couldn't find anybody. And then I turned around. I had a whole congregation looking at me just like that. Uh, and I realized, oh, that's my job. <laughs> I'm the one that's supposed to, you know, give everybody all the answers. So um, that's a that's a. Very disturbing place to be, but it is truly your responsibility as a religious leader to step up to the plate during those moments and be the presence that people need you to be. And it is not easy.
0: Fun fact, anywhere you stand in Connecticut, you can stare 15 miles and you've looked out of Connecticut. I learned that yeah. uh, for, for the year I lived in Madison, Connecticut as a kid. So yeah. It's about like Rhode Island. It was like, couldn't you all have find a little bit bigger <laughs> territory like make it worth your while if you will.
1: Yeah. Well, can I, you know we we we're we're twice as big as Rhode Island. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's I not mean, much it, to brag on. No, it's not. I mean, you, you could drive from our, we were in southwest uh, Connecticut or lower Fairfield County. So we were more in the New York City metro area than anything else, but you could drive from us and di- drive diagonally across the state and be in massachusetts rhode island in about two and a half hours tops <laughs> yeah, so it yeah. is very tiny state
0: now in the book you talk about uh anger as an appropriate response uh, to grief Absolutely. um you know how did you navigate this kind of deep well of emotion through through sermons but also you know within yourself as you're having to be the one that cares for people experiencing the
1: tragedy you know, I, honesty is really important in these kind of moments. And um, my question—I mean, I had real questions for God, right? And um, and I just took those questions to the the congregation in those sermons, believing that if if God is real and if God, you know, is a an entity. Um, then God would have to be big enough to handle my questions, right? Um, and that doesn't mean that there was going to be some kind of revelatory answer that was going to be answering all these questions. A lot of the questions uh are so painful because there are no answers to them, right? But God has to be big enough to field those questions, and there's plenty of passages throughout the scriptures that that show that human beings have been ans- asking those kind of questions to God for thousands of years. And, you know, all of our religions have provisional answers to those questions and, and the religions that are still meaningful to people's lives, uh, continue to provide some kind of provisional answers, even though they're, you know, in, in the, in the moment, they're, uh, hard to kind of accept or, Or even find useful, but uh, for me, as I kind of waded through the lectionary texts that that Lent and uh, worked through those scriptures, um, what emerged out of every one of those gospel texts through Lent was the fact that Jesus was grappling with his own imminent death. Every one of those passages has to do with Jesus's you know impending death. And, um, all what came through to me was that our God says that, um, God will come suffer with you. We're not exempt from it. Jesus wasn't exempt from human suffering, um, but God suffers with, and, I don't know if it's just misery loves company or what, but that was really that was a real consolation to me, mainly because it wasn't just God suffering with us. It was that we were all suffering together, too, and that kind of communal experience uh, had to have lightened it at some level instead of having to bear that completely by yourself. Uh, that that whole faith community, along with the God we worship, uh, was suffering with us. And even the questions that Jesus would ask in those lectionary te- texts were questions that we had, you know. So finding ourselves with the questions that the Bible was asking, um, that was consoling. But um, just being present with each other and seeing God's presence with us was... Um, those are some real life-giving moments that help sustain us through it.
0: This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experienced and highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. You know, many church communities have not been given permission to express um, the polarities of emotions that are experienced in something like this. And you wrote about the strange connection of of pain and love, uh, stating, there's a, a deep reciprocity between love and pain. This isn't anecdotal information either. Science has shown that the place in the brain that is activated during physical pain is the same region or overlaps significantly with the part of the brain that is activated during social duress. Take us a little deeper there. And and help us to think about, you know, what did you learn from this experience about the emotional capacity of congregations?
1: Yeah, well, that whole point is uh, th- their love and love and pain come from the same parts of the brain. And that was pretty fascinating to to see. But in my own lived experience, the the proportional nature of grief to love is is a is a 1 to 1 ratio man i mean the more you love the more you're going to grieve and and the the pain that you're suffering is directly proportional to the love that you had for that person i think that's just i mean everybody knows that right i mean when a stranger dies it, you know it's never that's always sad but when you're mother or father or sibling or you know when somebody close to you dies it's it's more accentuated just because your proximity and the nature of the love that you have for them so um that is uh that's what made it so hard for sure because we we love chet and and like i said you know i I still love him uh and i i think about him uh and 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 this book was it was kind of a rehashing of all those experiences. And some of it, man, I would be writing this kind of my reflections on it and just get caught, you know, uh, uh, get all emotional all over again over a decade after the fact. And I've done, I've talked about the book in places, uh, in some seminary course classes and in those presentations, get caught up just talking about it. So, um, that grief is always uh, right there. You know, it's just, it's right there. And um, it doesn't matter how long it is. Um, those that that stays with you, it, it redefines who you are. And that's, and I want to say, that's not a bad thing. Um, you don't want to have grief uh, a, debil- a debilitating grief, and uh, Columbia University has a great center for complicated grief that talks about that kind of uh, debilitating grief that prevents you from kind of living your your life. Um, that's not good. There, you, you definitely need to get some real professional help uh, if you are caught in complicated grief. But uh, but but that kind of grief that comes through suffering a loss of someone you love, it's important to that it re- de- redefine your life and helps kind of recontextualize the way you understand your life and the the way you live and exist in the world in relation to other human beings. Because you want to have uh, that grief is an example of love, but also an example of meaning. And, and And that's the kind of meaning that we have in relationships. We want our relationships to mean something. And um, and so grief is a reminder of what a, a meaningful relationship is. And it's important. I think it's important as our human beings. I mean, if, if we had, it, 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 it is uh, an undeniable sense. Of, it gives you an undeniable sense of human empathy. And if our world needs anything right now, it needs a big dose of, of empathy. Uh, in, in such a divided country as ours right now in the middle of our politics, we need to h- figure out how to have a capacity for empathy. And and grief does that. It does that in profound ways.
0: You know, my experience, uh, the church doesn't talk enough about suicide and mental health. Uh, we tend to respond to it when it happens uh, yeah. in tragic circumstances. I mean some faith traditions have an official theological stance on suicide right. that that I think is loosely and insensi- insensitively based on a single passage of scripture with a whole host of passages that contradict that particular theological yeah. stance. You know why do you think the church doesn't talk about suicide and mental health?
1: Um I mean mental health I think I think we're you know, moving in the right direction on mental health. Suicide, however, is still lags behind on that. Uh, because, I mean, it's it's a difficult conversation. It's a difficult thing to deal with, um, and we are still learning how to create a vocabulary around it. Almost like a vocabulary of grace to talk about. Mental health and uh, and suicide in particular, so um, you know that's not easy. And look, professional therapists uh, have a hard time moving through that space with with folks who are, are you know living in the aftermath. So um, you know stigma is is just one of the major things related to mental health and suicide and addiction as well. And, uh, stigma is a socially constructed thing. So, um, you know, we're just, we're real, we, we've been ill-equipped and our religions because, I mean, listen, suicide is painful, it's difficult, it's tragic, and we don't want people to kill themselves. So, um, uh, kind of the historic religious response to it is to make it such a, unpardonable sin that that stigma would uh, hopefully prevent people from doing it right that's kind of the historical origins behind the stigma related to self-killing uh and 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 I mean when you put it in historical context you understand that because you don't want people to die by suicide you don't want people to feel su- to be in such a dark place that they think that's the only way to uh you know Take care of their circumstances. So, uh, his, from a historical standpoint, I, I get it. Uh, from a real life standpoint, in flesh and blood, uh, you want to move away from that as soon as possible because, uh, you know, not just for the person who's grappling with uh, self harm, but for all those who love that person and who uh, would have to live in the aftermath of their death. Uh, you want to create a more graceful uh, theological space for them, and and th- this the sermon that I preached for the funeral I think is is full of an attempt to do that, and and this was was the best parts of that came from George when he sent it to me, and uh, you know there's these three points where you know forgive Chet first of all forgive Chet second of all, forgive yourself, and third of all, forgive each other. That that alone was probably all I needed to say, and there were so many people that came up afterwards who had lost somebody to suicide and said that, you know, that had, they had never heard that, and that gave them the comfort from something that happened to them so many years ago. The other piece was um, we shouldn't we shouldn't judge somebody based on their last and worst decision they make because god doesn't either um i i've married that statement in my life and uh, share that with as many people as i can. I don't believe in a god that would do that and therefore i you know i shouldn't do that either so um that's the, you know coming with a strong conviction about, I don't believe in a God that would punish somebody for their last worst decision. Um, I believe in a God that's bigger and better than that. Uh, and a lot of a lot of, you know, a lot of folks with their kind of traditional religious, uh, convictions about God challenged me on that, but, you know, I just refuse to believe in a God that bad. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how we move through that space together and and how I would kind of um, hold that conversation within a religious community uh, in conceptions of God.
0: How would you recommend congregations develop a, a working theology about mental health?
1: Yeah, I mean there's no congregation that doesn't have somebody in it dealing with mental health issues. Right. Um, so it's net, it's, it's in your congregation already. And listen, being a pastor, you're, you're not, you're not a psychologist. You're not a therapist. I mean, some pastors do go to and, and get real training and counseling and therapy and, and they are, I mean, congratulations to them, but most pastors aren't, they may have taken one course in pastoral care in seminary, um, but look, let's just be honest with ourselves. Uh, we're not, we're not professional counselors. We're professional pastors, and that's a different kind of thing. So, first of all, I would definitely, as any pastor should, they sh- you should have a short list of therapists that you know and could recommend uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, at, at, at a, you know off the tip of your tongue, really. So I I think knowing where there are resources out there for for yourself and for your congregation, I think pastoral leadership needs to be very honest about their own mental health and what they're struggling with and share that with the congregation. Uh, I don't think that's bleeding on your congregation. I think that is being honest with your congregation and giving them permission to be honest with themselves and with each other. Um, Frederick Beekner in one of his books, um, it really kind of, it really kind of brought this home to me when he was talking about his daughter, who was dealing with, uh, eating disorders. And he went to a 12 step program and he was contrasting church to a 12 step program. He goes, when you go to church, you put on your best face and you put on your best clothes and you say, I am Dr. So-and-so. And you give all your, the best things about yourself first. And when you go into a 12-step program, you start with the worst thing. My name is Jason and I am an alcoholic, right? You start off with like, bam, this is the most, this is the most devastating thing in my life. And, uh, and I, you know, how do you create a church where, you can say, "My name is Jason, and I am a failure." Uh, and still have like real compassion and love for each other. Honestly, I don't think congregations who who don't have that at some level are probably failing as a congregation and as a community. So um, you know, being honest with yourself and and having a congregation, That is honest, where people can be honest together. Um, that's hitting like all the best things about what church can be. So
0: what's your hope for your readers?
1: I mean, my greatest hope is that if there's anybody out there contemplating hurting themselves and they run into this book, I hope this book is a witness of how much we've loved we love Chet still. And I hope that. And that they'll know that they are loved like that and would not hurt themselves. I mean, that is uh, that has been priority number one with this this whole time. Number two, it is a book to help people grieve and, and love through trauma. Um, and, and third, uh, a real resource for pastors who are struggling with what to do. Uh, when this happens in their congregation. And it is a, when it happens, it is, it's uh, right now in COVID that's something else that's been ex- accentuated. Uh, suicide and death by suicide is um, happening at a higher rate right now. Uh, and uh, it is not a matter of if it will happen in your congregation, but when, and um, th- this can be a, a real resource for you. So um that that's when I think of the book and and my highest hopes for it. I, I think of it in that kind of three tiered thing for anybody, uh, some kind of intervention in somebody who's struggling with self harm, uh, a way for people to uh, move forward through grief, and a resource for pastors.
0: How do you imagine you know pastors and and congregations utilizing this book as a resource?
1: I mean, it, it's it, it's a def, I mean, it's a quick read, right? It's it's about a hundred pages, and um, it's the first book I've written that my mother can read. So I'm pretty excited about that. I mean, most of my academic stuff is just, you know, for academics, which is boring, is terrible. But uh, my mom can read this book, so I, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, and so it is for anybody and it's a quick read, uh, but it is, it's an emotional and, and kind of penetrating space within somebody's own kind of life and religious context. So it, it can be used on a, you know, as a book study for a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night group or any kind of book group. Um, as a pastor who's looking for for resources, for sermon resources, it's definitely uh, can be used uh, for a pastor working on Lenten sermons or, or sermons dealing with the Odyssey and the problem of pain. So there's a lot of ways you can read the book, and it, or you can just sit down and read it uh, and go through it. So um, there, I, th- I think there's a, a lot of ways to do it. Uh, there's a couple of churches that have done kind of like their Wednesday night Bible study thing. Uh, they've done that and they've zoomed me in and had me with them for a little bit to talk about it uh, and then kind of field any questions. Um, So there's, I I think it's a pretty accessible book for anybody and uh, congregations in particular. I think it's important.
0: If you want to stay connected with Jason, follow his work through Together for Hope. Of course, you can follow him on Twitter as well. Um, Go out and purchase Faded Flowers wherever books are sold. Jason, thank you for using uh, the vulnerability of this tragic experience to equip us to think differently about how we approach mental health and the care for those experiencing loss.
1: Andy, thanks so much for your time, man. I I really do appreciate being a part of your podcast and uh, I hope this is helpful for anybody who who listens in.
0: Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.